This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Mikel Del Rosario, Cultural Engagement Manager here at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. And we have a special show for you today, as it's Christmas time. We want to talk about history and the Christmas story. We'll be talking about some of the most common questions that people have about the traditional Christmas story. And I have two guests coming to us via Zoom today. The first guest is Dr. Daryl Bach, Executive Director of Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center and Senior Research Professor of New Testament here at DTS. Welcome, Daryl. My pleasure, and you've got that introduction down, Mikkel. I just want you to know that. <laughs> I can say that in my sleep, unfortunately. <laughs> and my second guest coming to us also via Zoom is Joe Fanton, Professor of New Testament Studies here at DTS. Welcome, Joe. Uh, thank you. Good to be here. Well, it's a wonderful time of the year that we're talking about today. I want to begin just by thinking about the traditional nativity scene. You know, so many of us have these in our homes or we see them at our churches around Christmas time, and it's just so iconic, right? But back in the day, around 1223, St. Francis of Assisi put together what we now know as the traditional nativity scene. And it was never meant to be a, like a historical security camera footage version of what happened um, when Jesus was born. Instead, we have this collection of characters, different scenes in the story, um, kind of like a movie poster that just puts, pulls a number of these characters and scenes together. So let's think through the traditional nativity scene and kind of get a handle on what we're looking at when we see these uh, these famous iconic scenes around Christmas time. And Daryl, I want to start with you. If you could just help us kind of understand the time of the kind of time compression that's going on here when we, you know, on the one hand, we've got the shepherds who are linked with the angels. And then on the other hand, we've got the wise men who are linked with the star and they're all there together. But when did each group actually come on the scene? Well, to be honest, I'm not sure we know the chronology uh, with that kind of precision. We know in general terms, what's likely to have happened. And uh, most creches that I see have sheep present. They were in the field. They Mm -hmm. weren't with Jesus when he Mm -hmm. was born. So that's relocation number one. Um, The sense is is that the shepherds did visit pretty close to the birth, but the magi may have been later. And uh, we don't know how much later. We do know that Herod tried to slay all the children age two and under, after he figured out the Magi weren't coming back to tell him where where the Messiah had been born. And so we know there's a delay because the Magi have to visit, um, see, uh, find out where the location is, go to that location, and then leave that location, and leave that location long enough for Herod to become suspicious, they're not coming back to tell me where he's located. Mm -hmm. So this is after, we just don't know how much after. Mm, So when you, when you, when you do the crush scene, at least the normal way that it's seen and you want to be biblical, I think what you have to do is the shepherds could be there. Joseph and Mary could be there with the baby. The sheep need to go back to the field and Mm -hmm. the magi are somewhere. We just don't know where, 
they're not in the room at the same time that the shepherds are. Mm-hmm. Now, what was the social status of shepherds, and why was that their uh, why was their visit important? Well, that's actually debated. Some people think that shepherds have a very negative uh, connotation, but most of the evidence we have for that is is later than the first century. So we can't be sure that actually goes back into the first century. Uh, and as a result, some of the points that are made off of, you know, the shepherd's background, et cetera, that you sometimes hear in association with the Christmas story may actually not reflect the point of the narrative. Hmm. What, why do you think their visit was important? Well, as is true of the entire scene from beginning to end, everything about it, it reflects a very humble uh, or set of origins for Jesus. I, I like to joke with my classes that if you were in the PR meeting planning the arrival of the Messiah, you know, and you were saying, what's the best, most effective way to do this? Uh, that most of the planning that would involve the normal way we would think about public relations is it would happen with a lot of fanfare. It would happen in a capital city. Everyone would be aware that it's going on, et cetera. In fact, what you get is uh, a, a little village outside a capital of a location that is very tangential in the totality of the greco roman Empire tucked away in a little corner. I, I, my analogy is it'd be like someone being born in Samoa in relationship to the United States. And then, and then of course, the people who are gathered, I mean, the Magi obviously have traveled a long way to come, but the shepherds and, the, and Joseph and Mary themselves being in a, in a room because there isn't room at the end, everything about it is very, very humble and reflects the fact that God has come, you know, not for the elite, not for the powerful, but for, uh, for anyone and everyone who is reflective of being made in the image of God. Mm-hmm. And these are Jewish shepherds, right? That, I would assume so, yeah, we're in Israel. <laughs> and so we have the Jewish shepherds, and then we have these magi who are coming from outside Israel. And Joe, let's talk about the, uh, the magi for a little bit. In Matthew 2, 2, the magi came to Jerusalem. They were asking, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose. We've come to worship him. And then verse 9 says, it went before the Magi and it came to rest over the place where the child was. Um, let's think about who the Magi were for a minute. Who are these guys? Again, we're not 100% sure on, on who these guys are, but uh, probably our, our best educated uh, uh, conclusion or, or guess is they're probably uh, Persians. Persians were uh, interested in uh, in astrology, they were interested in stars. Uh, the the word magi really only appears here, although we also see it uh, later um, in the book of Acts, chapter thirteen. We're talking about a magician there. Um, mm. People who probably are not uh, what we would normally think of as good Christian type people, or even good Jewish people, interested in stars, interested in that, but would have nevertheless probably been important. Uh, they might have a history going back into Babylon and Persia with. Uh, even the book of Daniel may mention individuals like this. So uh, uh, the best guess we would probably say would be these are um, uh, you know, s- astrologers interested in the stars mm-hmm. and saw significance uh, in, in that type of mm-hmm. uh, um, phenomenon. How did ancient people view stars? Uh, certainly differently than, than we think about stars today. But what was the idea that they had in terms of why they were watching the star and what stars were? Uh, the ancients watched the skies for lots of things, whether it be birds and 
uh, during the daylight or stars at night. Uh, these could be deities uh, at, at times, but they also, uh, you know, depending on how the stars were aligned, it depended on what type of life you'd have if you were born under those particular things. So they paid a lot of attention to these kinds of things. And like I said, in some cases, when uh, an important person died, they might look up to the sky and, and saw a new star, and they could have uh, identified that individual with that. So um, these were, were important. These were the types of things that uh, the gods used or the gods themselves were that could help hmm. direct and us get a, uh, get a connection to uh, some information that we might not otherwise have access to. Hmm. Um, Philo and Origen saw stars as, as living kinds of beings, and in the Old Testament, some people saw them as angels. It's interesting, in 1993, Dale Allison had a piece in uh, Bible Review magazine where he cited uh, the Arabic gospel of the infancy. In chapter 7, it says that it was an angel in the form of a star. Is that a, a widely held idea that it was an angel? I don't think it's a widely held view, but it's, it's one of the potential supernatural explanations for the star. It could have been uh, a star that God did outside of the normal course of uh, creation uh, to lead the Magi's there. And uh, this notion that it could have been an angel makes sense. It could be a, a supernatural um, expression of God trying to use an angel to guide, and the star is just a way of, of doing that. So hmm. uh, I don't think it's widely held, but uh, it fits within that type of interpretation mm -hmm. of a supernatural idea. That's interesting. I don't think I've ever seen a Christmas play where you dressed up a kid as an actual star, you know, and then had them like come on the <laughs> on the stage. Uh, but that would be interesting. Daryl, I think about the new, new play character there. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So so we've traded, I guess what, we've traded the Magi for a star to be named later or earlier or something <laughs> like right. that. Anyway. Yep, yep. <laughs> so when we think about these Christmas plays, Daryl, sometimes we see these, uh, these plays have an, an innkeeper or a hotel with this no vacancy sign up. How likely was it that there was anything like a Holiday Inn or anything like that in Bethlehem? Yeah, Motel, Motel 6 wasn't leaving a light on for them. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, what this room is, is basically an animal stall. It's attached to the edge of a building. It's the one place they could put the couple uh, that would get, afford some limited shelter, that kind of thing, for someone, you know, bearing a child. Uh, but it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't anything close to a Holiday Inn or or a Motel Six or anything like that. It's uh, again. It's part of this very basic uh, picture of a very humble, basic beginning. I mean, there are no creaturely comforts being afforded to this couple as they give birth to this figure who literally was history and historically transforming in terms of mm -hmm. the history of the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. The old 1984 NIV translates Luke 2, 7, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So this idea that there was no room for them in the inn is something we need to think about a little bit. Um, Joe, what do we know about that, that word, the inn there that's used? Uh, the kataluma term, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, 
it most likely is some type of public shelter place that could uh, that existed in various towns. And given that this was census taking place, there were probably lots of people coming through. Might have been a uh, an area in which uh, a town designated that uh, people could gather. A uh, place like that. Uh, um, we see it also used uh, in the upper room. Uh, Prior to the Passover, Jesus tells a disciple to go find a, a person and tell him that I need to, you know, have the Passover meal. And that's the kind of room in that case that he is asking about. He uses the same type of a term there. So, again, uh, uh, probably a public thing had nothing to do with, as Daryl said, a uh, Holiday Inn, which I guess is the NIV translation is what the <laughs> holiday is kind of implied. There. Well, yeah, the, the Judean, Judean Hills Hotel. No, not that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was something that interestingly in 2010, the NIV translated it. Uh, there was no guest room available for them. So there's, there's kind of the English language has, has maybe changed a little bit in the minds of some people when we see the word in. Um, in Luke 10.34, the Good Samaritan took this man to a place, the uh, Pandakeon. Is that more, Daryl, is that more like what we think of as, a, as an inn? Yeah, I mean, and there's obviously someone caring for that location as well. I mean, he leaves money with him and says, you know, if there's anything else that he owes you, I will pay you when I come back. So this is obviously a fairly traditional stopping place, if I can say it that way, where someone could, um, who is traveling, business person, something like that could stay. Mm-hmm. So I... Good. I was going to um, just add, I often wonder, I'm not sure uh, there's what type of evidence there is for this, but in light of the hospitality uh, uh, of the ancient mm-hmm. century, um, this was a very common thing for people to extend hospitality, have people come in. I'm wondering if towns, in light of uh, um, big potential gatherings, set places like this aside just for times like this, where uh, you don't necessarily have to have that personal touch to go live with a family or go stay with a family. Um, but nevertheless, the town can offer some type of hospitality. It gets the average person a little bit off the hook, but at the same time, the, the town maintains a hospitality type of uh, um, image, if you will. But again, we don't just don't have enough evidence to uh, to discuss that one way or another. But it is a potential possibility. Mm-hmm. So the area where Jesus was born, then Daryl, you were talking about it being in, in an area where there were uh, potentially animals. And what is, what is a manger? Because we hear this, we sing the song, uh, Away in a Manger, and sometimes people aren't entirely sure, was that a barn or like, what is that? Tell us what a manger is. Uh, it's an animal trough, basically. Um, so, um, yeah. It, it, so this room, however it was being used, also was a place where um, animals could be housed in case of weather or something like that, or if they needed uh, an opportunity to just refresh themselves. This would be a place where that could take place. Like I say, it's just a very, very common, maybe mm-hmm. even rustic mm-hmm. uh, location. Uh, there's nothing special about it. There, you know, we aren't. There's no penthouse. Uh, this is this is on the mm-hmm. opposite end of that scale. And is the is were the feeding troughs made of stone or were they made of wood more commonly? I actually don't know the answer to that question. Uh, um, uh, my, I, I, and I wouldn't even know to surmise. I mean, I imagine it could be either, but mm-hmm. I don't know that. 
Okay. Yeah, there have been a couple of, there's a picture in the Holman Bible Dictionary of one in stone, but then also we have a lot of our common pictures in, in wood. And I know there's, obviously there's trees around the area, but there's also a lot of stone there. So, but the point being, it's super humble, right? This is not like what you would make up. It also tells us that Luke resisted the temptation to make the physical location a grand kind of a place, that the early church didn't invent this setup, even though Jesus was called the King of the Jews. And speaking of which, Joe, why was, why was King Herod so concerned about the Gentiles or anybody calling a little baby the king of the Jews? Well, first and foremost, uh, King Herod was the king of the Jews. Uh, <laughs> uh, so any other person, I guess it's kind of like someone coming up to, uh, uh, to your wife and saying, hey, um, I'm Mikhail's wife. Um, might, not, might not go over very well with your wife. It was, it was a term that... Uh, or a, a, a title that King Herod held, and he held it um, rather uh, loosely, if you will. He, he'd been trying to maintain some type of connection to the previous Jewish dynasty, the Hasmoneans. And, uh, and if you go back to the Apocrypha, they basically give the Hasmonean dynasty uh, the rule and high priesthood of, uh, of Israel. But they always, they, they qualify it in First uh, Maccabees 14, and they qualify by saying, you are the, you know, basically the, the ruler and high priest until uh, the rightful um, person comes back. And I often think of, uh, of the Lord of the Rings uh, story. You have uh, Gondor and mm. the guy who is the steward of Gondor and mm-hmm. wants to onto the power. And when the actual king shows up, uh, there's some resistance to him, and I think this is what Herod was probably feeling. He he realized that he his whole claim to uh, to ruling the Jewish people, at least from a um, from the people's perspective, was uh, that uh, he had a connection to that dynasty. And then all of a sudden, he hears, "Hey, the king of the Jews is being is here, or is being born, or however he might have heard it to him." That would be a challenge. Hmm. We also read- he was a little he's a little bit of a paranoid character too. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, uh, he killed his favorite wife. I'll never forget doing a tour with um, I think it was with IFL in Israel and and we were talking about Herod at the time and I told him the story about the member of, number of family members he executed, the fact that he killed his favorite wife. And so my application to that talk was he can then he came to regret it. So, um, you know, so my application was don't kill your favorite wife. I don't <laughs> think about that too much. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so, so he was, he had a re- reputation for being holding ruthlessly onto his power. He changed his will multiple times, etc. So it was clear he held the title, uh, and he was, he was, uh, jealous of holding the title, if I can say it that way, and even acted out of that jealousy which, as background, actually helps us understand why the idea that he would slay the two-year-olds and unders makes sense and fits in the character of what we know about him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, was a, he, was, he killed two of his kids, too, which uh, is um, not the thing a sane person normally does, but for the same reasons uh, to maintain that power concern that they would, uh, would overtake him. I think uh, the Emperor Augustus is quoted as saying, it was safer to be a, a pig. Mm-hmm. The Greek word for pig looks an awful lot like the word for son. It's safer to be a pig in Herod's uh, uh, castle and 
home than it is to be a son. Mm-hmm. I don't know if Augustus really said that, but it's a play on words. The point that the, the pig is safe to run around uh, in a Jewish home without fear of being eaten. And yeah. yet uh, the sons could be uh, killed. Wow. Yeah, so Herod becomes the black widower is basically what happens. <laughs> he, uh, so he's not a very, he's not, he, he's a brilliant character in the kind of building that he engaged in, but he is not a sympathetic character in terms of the way he treated people. Mm-hmm. And so when it says that the people or Herod was disturbed and all the people with him, that's because they were kind of this, this dude's like the paranoid king, right? Who is he going to kill next? Who looked at him the wrong way? Um, yeah, all so that's we, in Josephus. We can, you get, we get that detail from what Josephus tells us about Herod. Hmm. So we have the shepherds, uh, we have the Magi, and we talked about King Herod, who, of course, King Herod isn't in the nativity scene. That would be quite a thing if you had a kid stumble <laughs> on there. You're not in this scene. That's a crash on steroids. There you go. But during Christmas time, when we begin to hear people uh, questioning the historicity of the Christmas story, there are some of these cultural kinds of uh, historical questions that people have, but some people go straight to the miraculous part, and their objection would be something like, Jesus' virgin birth seems to be uh, patterned off of pagan myths in the Greco-Roman world. Um, Joe, you've done a lot of work in this, in this area of uh, Greco-Roman uh, religion. How does it work to deify somebody um, in the, this polytheistic kind of system? Um, by de- well, uh, the Romans worshipped men, uh, generally speaking, although they didn't until the imperial period. But uh, um, to deify uh, a person, I think, uh, let me step back and say, for important people, um, they wanted to have miraculous-type births. Mm-hmm. They had stories that surrounded their birth, whether or not they were actually ultimately going to be deified or not. And uh, it just seemed to be one of the cr- uh, things on your resume if you wanted to be an important individual. You'd have to find out birth, uh, remarkable, and that would uh, tick that particular box. Um, so it was not uh, uncommon, and it was probably expected of people who were claiming greatness one way or another, uh, they would have had this, which, again, I think your question is leading towards uh, how can we trust the gospel ones? We know these ones probably aren't uh, true in that respect. Okay, so somebody who was perceived to be a great uh, heroic figure would have some kind of uh, miraculous birth story or supernatural origin. Um, This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Let's let's talk about this a little bit, Daryl. I know we've talked about this. We had did a whole show on this with Mary Jo Sharp a couple of years back. But what place would a deified person get in the pantheon? 
Well, what you get, a deified person is a person who is treated as having lived a life, if I can say it this way, worthy of a God. Hmm. And, and so it's a way of honoring someone and giving them a status um, and, and basically saying, he ruled us um, like a God. That would be one way to think about it. And, and when you think of the pantheon of gods, you got to remember the Romans had a ton of gods. Uh, you go to um, Pompeii and you walk around, you're running across all kinds of temples to all kinds of gods as you roam the streets of Pompeii. Um, and, and in fact, uh, I like to joke, you know, there were a lot of religious holidays in the Roman calendar. I think there are about 150 Roman uh, holidays, religious holidays a year that people were supposed to participate in. And I like to joke that we got to adopt that calendar. A holiday every three days isn't bad. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. so, uh, but it shows you that how, how spiritual, I'll put it in quotes, um, religious life was in the Greco-Roman world. And in fact, Christians were even called atheists because they only believed in one God. You know, you, look at all these gods you're leaving out is, the, is that perspective. And, and so this, this elevation uh, sometimes touched on rulers, and they would be basically at the bottom of the pantheon. You know, they would make it in, but they would kind of be on the back rows, if you want to think of it that way. One of the points I like to make about the Christology of the New Testament is Jesus isn't in the back row of the pantheon. You know, he's kind of at the top layer. Mm -hmm. uh, he's seated at the right hand of God. So that contrast is very important culturally in terms of what it's trying to say about the nature of Jesus' authority. Mm -hmm. So very different from how Christians began to give honors to Jesus as divine. Uh, no one ever thought that uh, Alexander the Great was Adonai, maker of heaven and earth, and that you know the the top spot that Jewish people would give um, you know to to God who created everything. Well, there's a couple. No, of he's like the new Heisman Trophy winner. You know, welcome to the club. And, <laughs> and, and I think of those commercials that I see where where the last winner of the Heisman Trophy is cleaning the door for the other guys who live in the house. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's kind of the way to think about it. Yeah, and Mikhail, it might be helpful to, to think, uh, to, to elaborate on what Daryl said there is um, the way the Romans would have viewed gods would have been quite differently than we do. They didn't quite have this concept, as Daryl alluded to, of this all-powerful creator type of a god. Uh, they had a much more limited uh, type of deity. And when you... Uh, lived in that particular context, and you honor an individual, you give them various honors, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but at some point, you honor somebody so highly that it actually becomes worship. Where the Romans, the difference between honor and worship of men and gods was probably a difference in degree. It just happened to be greater honor turned into worship. Um, whereas us with Christianity, when we honor people, it's completely of different kind than when we consider worship, where mm -hmm. we're worshiping God. It's a, it's not a difference in degree like the Romans would have had. It would have been mm -hmm. different in mm -hmm. kind. Uh, and you can even say the same thing about their divine men. Uh, we think of us and God as completely different, uh, for lack of better term, species. Um, whereas in the Roman concept, you know, Gods could simply be just great, great, uh, powerful individuals. And uh, things like immor immor uh, immortality were not necessarily a uh, 
character only of gods. There were other beings in their concept that were immortal, but they weren't necessarily deities. But yet you have these men, uh, such as emperors, that would have uh, been actually seen as gods. And I think Daryl's alluding to those who would actually become gods officially, um, put into the pantheon, if you will. Um, they would have gotten a name like Divus. And that was generally reserved in the first century for um, emperors that would, did good things like uh, Augustus and then Claudius and Vespasian and uh, people like that. Um, but the individual themselves, the man, while he was alive, was also viewed um, as a god. Whether or not he ultimately becomes a, uh, an official divus, as they would have been called, um, was still up in the air. But nevertheless, when he was walking on that earth, he would have been considered by the Roman people um, a deity in that <laughs> respect. And they put that on the coins too, didn't they? Yeah. The, the son of a god, right? So and that again, everybody if, know. If you're Tiberius, for example, and your uh, adopted father is Augustus and he is God, what better title to have than son of God? Mm -hmm. uh, think mm -hmm. about our own political situation. If one of the candidates can actually ever say, um, I am the son of God, uh, he's going to have a leg up on his competition. And it was just a matter of way which these emperors were able to appeal uh, to the masses. I mean, it's likely that the Emperor Nero deified, had Claudius deified, who was not the most um, popular of emperors, uh, in order that he could claim the title son of God. We don't know for sure, but it sure came out uh, convenient for him. Hmm. Well, there's a couple of people that I want to mention quickly who are often cited as, a, as examples of these alleged parallels. And I'll just get each of you to respond to what you might think uh, is going on here as far as any similarities at all. Uh, the first one is Alexander the Great, and we can read in, in Plutarch around 336 BC. He wrote that Alexander's mom dreamt that there was this thunderbolt that hit her womb. His dad had a dream that he was closing up her womb. And then the strangest thing that he saw was he saw this snake lying next to her in bed. He thought that she was having sex with some kind of higher being, that she was the consort of some kind of deity. Um, Daryl, what strikes you as the strongest contrast one could possibly um, think about between this story, like the similarity and the contrast between this story and what the Bible tells us about Jesus' virgin birth? Well, what's very interesting is the matter of detail we get about how the conception itself took place. Um, very um, vivid imagery in the case of uh, the emperor, um, leaving uh, no doubt really how this happened, no mystery to it whatsoever, really in many ways. Um, you contrast that to the New Testament, which is simply the announcement that the Holy Spirit will overshadow you, and that's all that's said. There's no, there's no detail to the how and the when and all that kind of stuff, um, just the generic um, who's responsible kind of description and that's all it is it's it's a simple description without any detail um and that's in stark contrast to the vivid portrayal that you just mentioned um that is significant for a variety of reasons you know actually i don't know if there's any symbolism attached to the snake per se but certainly there is um uh there is this this vividness that is associated with how this took place to try and i think give it a sense of credibility yeah we know exactly when and how this happened mm -hmm. um joe do you know anything about this snake um snake theme because i'm about to mention mention caesar augustus and yeah. he's got a snake theme in his origin story too 
Yeah, no, I'm, again, I suspect it's the, they're both different uh, deities, though, that are associated with the snake in this case. So uh, I'm not sure there might be something overly significant. I would like to mention, though, that uh, when Philip did see his wife, Alexander's father, Philip, did see his, his wife with this snake, it says in Plutarch there that it cooled his passion I think it would have that effect on me too, you know. But yeah, we see that snake theme in a couple of places, and it was just kind of a, a mysterious, you know, um, type of thing. I'm sure there might be something out there on that, hmm. but the snake seems interesting. Theme, like I say, it's, it appears again with Augustus, but that's going to be the god Apollo, uh, mm-hmm. way than mm-hmm. the, god, uh, the god Zeus. Yeah, well, let's talk about Caesar Augustus briefly. We can read about him in Suetonius, and Suetonius wrote the 12 Caesars in the early 2nd century. And there he says that Augustus' mom was at this midnight worship service for Apollo, like you said. And then this snake, uh, according to Suetonius, it says the snake went up inside her, and then she purified herself just like she would have done after sex. And she was actually married at the time, too. Um, But then she actually, she had a daughter, before Augustus was born. So right off the bat, no virgin birth there. But in the minds of ancient people, are there any important similarities between either of these stories and Jesus' virgin birth story? Uh, There probably were um, in the minds of ancient people. Everybody wanted to be associated with Alexander one way or another. Hmm. Uh, You know, everybody, uh, uh, whether it be Julius Caesar earlier or Augustus, I mean, he was just a a great individual in um, in the history in the history books, everyone wanted to do something that way. So um, I'm sure there's something uh, there, but uh, as far as beyond that, uh, a lot of these stories would have had, you know, remarkable, but you, you mentioned the, uh, Daryl mentioned the idea of virgin birth. Neither of these stories emphasize virginity at all um, in these cases. Um, So that's probably another major contrast between these and in your gospel stories, which, emphasize that notion mm-hmm. and as Mikkel noted um the in the one case we know we are definitely not dealing with a virgin birth yeah. so um uh yeah the the um the emphasis on the condition of mary during the birth is um tied of course to the isaiah passage and the idea that there's a promise of this um unusual i'll say it this way it, it's in the story, as it's developed in the infancy material, there is this sense of there's something unusual and and supernatural about this birth. And I think to that extent, it may share the backdrop of these other stories. But of course, the point here is is that is that this is <laughs> this isn't just a way of portraying the Son of God. It's a way of saying this is the Son of God. And and then in that full sense that we talked about earlier, you know, this is not someone uh, making it in in the pantheon with the back seat on the back row. This is someone who goes, who goes directly to the right hand of God. You know, he does not pass go. He does not collect $200. He just goes straight to park place. And, uh, and, and, and so that's a significant difference in terms of the way the New Testament ends up portraying the role of what this represents ultimately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, also it's worth adding the types of literature we're looking at. Plutarch is writing, you know, probably close to 500 years or so after Alexander. Certainly he had other sources and things like that. But uh, Arian, for example, who wrote uh, around the same time, maybe a little earlier, uh, 
he doesn't have much of a remarkable birth for um for alexander i mean he has a a, a decent one but nothing like plutarch and plutarch was a biography suetonius uh is notoriously uh, is is known for having more uh, gossipy types of things. He's more likely to put rumor uh, and gossip in it, and those that's important because it's what people probably believe. But as far as historicity was concerned, we're not entirely uh, confident in things that you might find only in Suetonius, for example, that we won't find uh, in other writings uh, of the day. So um, you've got the date. In both those cases, they're long after. You know, there's nobody in the lifetime of uh, Alexander or Augustus reading those particular texts that could validate what was actually said. And uh, in the case of Suetonius, as I said, his uh, historicity is going to be a, a bit questioned uh, anyway. You're, I think you're telling me, Joe, that uh, Suetonius would write stuff that would belong in the 6.30 to 7 o'clock in the evening hour on television. You know, I think the it's a national or uh, yeah, the Sun yeah. News the Sun paper in Britain. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and again, that's, there's nothing wrong with that material. We just need to know how to actually, um, you know, incorporate it and use it. And of course, they might have had sources we no longer have access to. But, but yes, they're much more likely to mm-hmm. be at that period, yes. But the very idea that the virgin birth of Jesus was just a direct copy from some pagan story is dead in the water when you start taking a look at the actual texts that are supposedly copied off of. Um, Nothing at all like what we see in the Bible. Like Daryl said, a very, very simple description in the Bible. The Holy Spirit will come on you and you will uh, be with child. And then Mary says, let it be unto me, just like you said. And we see this this great... um, really of the model disciple, I would say, um, that we can all learn from and how whatever comes, um, we just say, you know, may God's will be done. And Daryl, when we think about the earliest preaching of the apostles, we don't see a huge emphasis on the virgin birth, do we? No, we don't. It's actually amazing how little it gets talked about uh, in the New Testament when you view it as a whole. And, and, uh, I think it may be because in many ways, if I can say it this way, the end of the story of Jesus's ministry is what the New Testament focuses on. You know, it's interested in the crucifixion and the resurrection. Uh, and the resurrection is seen as a restoration of where Jesus uh, originally came from. And so, you know, the idea in John's gospel about Jesus repeated, repeatedly is described in John's gospel as the sent one. You know, he's sent from heaven. Or you can think of the reverse parabola that you get in Philippians 2, where the picture is, you know, Jesus did not uh, view deity as a thing to be held on to, you know, grasped onto, but he emptied himself to take on humanity. So this picture is of Jesus going back to where he has been, and the virgin birth is simply a transition, a transition point in that larger story. Uh, that is being being portrayed. We tend to think of the virgin birth as the beginning, but it actually isn't from the biblical point of view. It's a, it's a transition point as opposed to being the beginning. So you don't see that much emphasis in the New Testament on it, not because it's it's not significant, but simply because it's it's actually a door through which the story moves as opposed to being, you know, this... Uh, the, this central defining feature of what's going on. Mm -hmm. The more defining feature is the pre-existence of Jesus 
in one sense or another, and also the return to what he becomes as a result of having done the work that he was sent to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It also seems to speak to the credibility of the virgin birth story to me, because as I like to say, why wouldn't they talk it up if they made it up? If the whole point was to say, let's worship this guy because he was born of a virgin. Why didn't they go around saying that all the time? Sometimes people say, well, how come um, if Jesus was born of a virgin, why doesn't Paul talk about it all the time? Or why, doesn't, uh, why don't the apostles talk about it all the time? Well, that wasn't the, the major thrust of their, of their preaching. Um, who was the only eyewitness to the virgin birth? Mary? <laughs> Do you, yeah, well, do you, it's clear Joseph struggled with it. I mean, yeah. you, you read Matthew, and he goes, you know, uh, the scene I the scene that isn't in the infancy material that I would love to have seen how it would have played out was when Joseph and Mary told their parents, mm-hmm. you know, what was going on, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know that would be an interesting that would have been an interesting conversation to overhear. But it's clear that Joseph was bothered by uh, the fact that he that his uh, bride-to-be was pregnant and uh, he knew enough biology to know I wasn't responsible for this so how'd this happen and and so he you know he goes to a default category which would be I think the default category everyone would go to if they were in that situation mm-hmm. and uh, and it, you know it's only a revelatory um, a revelatory moment that tells him, no, no, this is, this is a truly unusual birth. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, I, I, it's almost as heaven says, I understand why you didn't have the category for this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's finish up the, the discussion on the nativity scene with Mary and Joe, tell us if this is a standard situation in the first century, how old do you think Mary would have been? Oh, she could have been probably 14 to 16. She would have been young. Wow. And so uh, that's just, just about the age when she just starts to be able to give birth. Hmm. So that would, uh, that would play a role in who you would cast for your church play as well, huh? <laughs> <laughs> so let's think about the, um, the meaning of all of this now, because we can get into conversations about the possibility of miracles and the historicity of the gospel accounts around Christmas time. But it's important that we don't get so distracted by historical or philosophical questions in our, our 21st century context um, that we just miss out on what the gospel authors are saying through the infancy narratives. So let's think about the gospel of Luke just as we wrap up here. Luke tells us about a number of unusual things, as Daryl said, unusual things that happened. In the first chapter, we have Elizabeth, who's an old woman, gets pregnant, even though she never had kids before. And then we have Mary, a young teen, gets pregnant, even though she never had sex before. What, what do these kinds of things signal to the people who heard the story um, as it's in Luke, Daryl? Well, I, I think the key thing that, that I like to highlight when I talk about Luke's infancy material is a theme that often gets missed as we tell the story, particularly if we get, and I don't mean this negatively, but get distracted by the kinds of apologetics that often has, has to come in some ways because of people's doubts about the virgin birth. The point that both actually the infancy material in both Matthew and Luke make, but in different ways is God keeps his word. He made certain commitments and certain promises, and he will do what he says. He will do what he says if it takes unusual means to get there and it's in his timing and it's in his program 
So, you know, uh, there's a line in the Luke and infancy material of, uh, of in effect, um, uh, that this may seem to be impossible, but nothing's impossible with the Lord. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and so there, and then everything is steeped in promise. Now in Luke, it is portrayed in the language of the participants. In Matthew, it is portrayed through the language of the narrator pointing out different passages along the way that different actions represent fulfillment of in one way or another. So behind the backdrop of everything that's going on with regard to Jesus and the program is the fact God does have a plan and a program that he is executing. And he's promised certain things. He's made certain commitments. He said he would deliver his people. Uh, he, he has said uh, where that would take place um, and uh, under what kinds of circumstances would this child be born, those kinds of things. So there's a program that's being mapped out in God's way and in God's timing. And, and we're called to believe that so much so that when Mary does believe, um, you know, she's presented as a model believer, someone mm-hmm. who responds with trust, even though God is putting her in a very difficult situation personally to bear this child with the, with the reputation that it would have generated by having a child so early in the midst of betrothal. And so, um, so all of that is going on in the midst of, of, of what is happening. Wow. Well, our time has rapidly gone away from us, but I want to thank you both so much for being on the show. Um, looking at the historical background of the Christmas story, it just helps us to see, uh, as we've noted, the humility of Jesus' birth, the, the earmarks of historicity that are there, not the kind of thing you would make up. Um, and so let's continue to ponder, as Daryl was, was saying, the, the message of the infancy material that God can get his will accomplished and he will get his will accomplished no matter what, no matter how odd or unusual the circumstances uh, end up being. May we all take some time to ponder the good news of great joy for all people and the birth of Christ the Lord. Thanks, Daryl, for being on the show. My pleasure as always. Thank you, Joe, so much for being on the show too. My pleasure as well. Thank you. And we thank you for joining us on the table today. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you tune into the show. I'm Mikel Del Rosario, and we hope to see you again next time on the table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Thanks for listening to the table podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode is brought to you in part by Ministry Pivot with Russell St. Bernard. This podcast features important conversations with industry leaders such as Nona Jones, Bishop Walter Scott Thomas, Reverend Dr. Nicole Martin, and so many more. Visit ministrypivot.com or on all streaming platforms.